This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. West Nile virus, it is here. City of Hamilton has found its first case of West Nile virus in mosquitoes this year. Public Health received a positive result from mosquitoes found in a trap in the lower city on July 18th. So what does that mean? Well, let's bring in Susan Harding-Cruz. She's the manager of the Vectorborne Disease Unit. It almost sounds like a uh, uh, a tactical unit, uh, but she's on the show with us uh, this morning. Susan, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much, Rick. Uh, well, thanks for coming on. Uh, I think this is an important issue. I think the public should be aware of what's happening in our community, and this is one of those things that uh, we should be aware of. So, so what is happening? What has happened here? Yeah, so just like every season here for the last uh, 15 years, we, we have West Nile virus confirmed again in Hamilton. And, um, you know, this mosquito uh, can cause serious consequences, uh, especially in people who are, uh, say, middle-aged and up uh, or anyone who's Im- immunocompromised. So we really want people to remember that West Nile virus is in the area and they need to take precautions to prevent getting sick. So this was, uh, this infected mosquito was found in a trap in the lower city. Can, can public health be more specific on where that was? We, we report on our 12 major zones of the city. Uh, the main reason is uh, we, we want to track mosquitoes in the area, but we want to really get the message that when we do find positives, the, the key message is it is in Hamilton and therefore there is a risk. Um, so we don't pinpoint beyond uh, the, the major area of lower central Hamilton. I guess if you were to say, you know, it's in a specific neighborhood, it might cause a little bit of panic in that neighborhood. Is that one of the reasons why? Yeah, there's really not a reason to uh, to focus in that closely to a neighborhood because mosquitoes can travel uh, about two kilometers or so, this particular species of mosquito that can, can uh, infect people. So we don't really want to pinpoint a specific area more than, a, more than these zones. Uh, public health pushing the city's risk level from low to moderate. What does that mean? So a low one is uh, when we don't have any positive activity. We don't have human cases. We don't have any positive traps. Uh, We move to moderate, uh, a combination of factors. One is that if we do see some um, positive traps, but also as the days get warmer, it's more likely that the mosquitoes can multiply, pick up the virus from the birds. That's that's where they, um, they originally pick up the virus. And then they have the ability to transmit it to people. So the, the risk to people kind of goes up through the season. Uh, that's why we've changed to moderate. You mentioned uh, um, uh, there's a variety of traps or numerous traps. Uh, how many do we have and where are they? We set uh, between 15 and 19 traps a week. They're set each week, and they represent uh, all areas of the city um, in the urban areas and in settlement areas. The the mosquito we're focusing on that transmits the virus the most to people uh, are found in in areas of more urban environments. Mm. They they like to multiply in um, catch basins, like the city sewers. uh, That's why we treat them, and uh, also in artificial containers. We're chatting with uh, Susan Harding-Cruz, the manager of the Vector-Borne Disease Unit with the City of Hamilton here on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill uh, today. Um, Do those traps move within those zones or do they remain static? They remain static, and that helps us look at our our information year to year so that we can uh, look at uh, trends uh, year year over year. So um, we, we don't move them around. Uh, you mentioned the risk level is is now moderate. How does that compare to past years, and how would um, this time this year compare to this time last year? Yeah, so we moved, I looked at our stats from last year. Our first positive trap last year was July 26th. 
so we're a little bit earlier than than last year, uh, but we do tend to see activity in July, August, September, and then we call it at uh, the end of the season once we hit some good frost. So the the key issue is for people to just know it's in the area and to take precautions by avoiding mosquito bites and uh, covering up. I know it's hard for some of the hotter days, uh, but then if they could use insect repellent containing DEET, um, then they can protect themselves. If they know they're going to go somewhere where there are mosquitoes, then just to, to come prepared. We've had uh, a lot of rain this spring, uh, some significant downfalls this summer as well. Could that uh, likely be a contributing factor on why we're seeing a little bit of an earlier start compared to last year? It's possible. We've, we have been this early before. Um, and, however, with all the rain, the one thing that's that in our favor is we haven't had the, the steady high temperatures uh, you know, it's been fairly cool on different days. So we are just getting to the point of the risk changing to moderate for, for the likelihood of people getting infected. Uh, cities, so we're just kind of entering that time now. Right. The, the city's prevention efforts include larviciding treatments on uh, city street catch basins. So uh, explain that process. What goes into that? So um, we have a contractor who will go and treat the catch basins. Uh, we do typically three rounds a year. So uh, starting in June, they go to each catch basin and they put in a product called methoprene. And the methoprene stops the mosquito from being able to develop into an adult mosquito. Should, um, we, should we be worried or concerned at this point in terms of getting west now? Well, there's always a risk. When we Certainly when we know it's confirmed, we do have some activity uh, around us as well. Halton does have a positive mosquito trap as well. So, the, you know, it, it's every year we need people just to remember if they've got any water standing on their property, if they've got, uh, you know, a bird bath, that they're changing that water at least every week, that they're dumping out anything that's, you know, if they've got a wheelbarrow that's filled up, get that dumped over because that really helps us keep the number of mosquitoes down they don't get a chance to develop into adult mosquitoes. People are getting bitten by mosquitoes uh, in and around the city, really. Um, are there symptoms they should be looking for if, if that mosquito is infected with West Nile? What, what will a human notice? So if, if you're infected, the, uh, thankfully, 80% of people um, could get infected and not even really realize it. They just kind of get infected. Their body fights it off. But about 20% can get a fever. So they may start to feel like they've got the flu in the summer. So if they start to get some flu symptoms, they really need to, to see a doctor, and especially advise if they've had uh, any mosquito bites. And what portion of the population is most susceptible? We're we talking infants and, and, and the elderly? Yeah, so in addition to the West Nile fever that, that 20% can get, about 1% of people can actually go on to neurological and, and severe symptoms where they get encephalitis so that their brain is infected and they can actually, um, there is a very small percentage of people who could die from this. Uh, so we do want people to take it seriously. If you're, again, middle-aged, say in your 40s and up, the risk uh, tends to go up that you may um, experience more severe symptoms and uh, also if you're immunocompromised. So at any age, you really need to take precautions to avoid getting bitten. I was just thinking, we've come a long way since we first heard about West Nile virus, haven't we? A long way. We didn't even know how many mosquito species we were dealing with uh, in, in Ontario, and uh, it's now growing to over 60. Wow. So uh, we've, we've learned a lot about mosquitoes over the years, that's for sure. <laughs> and are all 60 in Hamilton? 
Uh, no, we don't have all 60, but we do have uh, the top ones that can transmit to West Nile. There's about 14 that have the potential. So we're always looking to see what uh, we test all different types of species that we catch in our traps to look to see whether we've got, you know, the West Nile virus in those species as well. Uh, yes. Yeah. I was just going to say, maybe just a recap for what people should be doing in and around their homes and themselves as well. So around the homes, please uh, look for any water that's standing. Uh, you should be dumping that out, not letting it accumulate for more than seven days. That's because the mosquito lays eggs and turns into an adult in as short as seven days, especially in the hot in the warmer summer. Uh, we need people to cover up, wear long sleeves, wear long uh, long pants. Uh, when they're out, when they know mosquitoes are going to be present. They can also use fans to try and detract um, mosquitoes from an area. They can also use DEET, uh, insect repellent. Please follow label directions, especially for children. Good stuff. Susan, thanks for the time today. Enjoy your weekend. Okay, thanks so much. Susan Harding-Cruz, manager of the Vector Borne Disease Unit out in the city combating not only mosquitoes but West Nile virus. City of Hamilton finding its first case of West Nile virus and mosquitoes this year. It came from a trap in the lower city on uh, July 18th, and that has pushed the city's risk level up from low to moderate. And as Susan was recommending, that um, use some bug spray containing DEET. Wear long sleeves and pants, especially in wooded areas. Might be a little uncomfortable when it's, you know, 30 and 37 with the Humidex. Uh, and remove any standing water. That's important as well as we can combat uh, the leg-ang or the egg-laying process. Uh, the city is also going to continue with its prevention efforts uh, in larvicidaing uh, city catch basins. And they're also going to be treating uh, surface waters on public land, which is uh, also underway. And if you have any flu-like symptoms, uh, go to your doctor. Check it out. Be safe. Who knows? It might not be West now. Either way, you want to get that uh, checked out. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. President Donald Trump's growing anxiety about the federal Russia probe has now spilled into public view with his warning in a New York Times interview earlier this week that special counsel Robert Mueller would be out of bounds if he dug into the Trump family's finances. But it appears that is a line that Mueller is going to be crossing. Several of Trump's family members and close advisors have already become ensnared in the investigations, including his eldest son, Donald Jr., as well as his son-in-law and White House senior advisor, Jared Kushner. Probing the family's sprawling business ties would certainly bring an investigation the president has called a partisan witch hunt even closer to the Oval Office. Here to shed some light on this issue is Claire Finkelstein, uh, Algeron Biddle, Professor of Law and Professor of Philosophy and the Director for the Center of Ethics and the Rule of Law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. And Claire joins us now. Claire, how are you? Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, first blush on, on the ramifications this may or may not have in the whole Russia election meddling uh, scheme or scandal. Well, first of all, uh, it's important to note that this is not a broadening of Mueller's mandate. And I think there's been a lot of misunderstanding about that. So I understand that President Trump, we're getting reports, is extremely anxious about what's going on. Uh, and as your uh, lead-in uh, indicated, 
Uh, he is talking about pardoning himself. He is talking about pardoning uh, family members. He's uh, looking into his options. Uh, be- and he is saying that this probe has gone beyond its legitimate bounds. Uh, so it's having even the discussion of looking into President Trump's personal finances is already having ramifications in terms of the president's reaction. Uh, now, the reason it's important to note that this is not a broadening of Mueller's mandate is that his original mandate was not restricted uh, there's no reason to suppose at any rate that it was restricted to uh, the campaign and did not cross the line originally into President Trump's personal finances and the finances of his family. The letter that Mueller received authorizing this investigation said that he could investigate any matters that arose or may arise directly from the investigation into the ties between Russia and the Trump campaign. If you don't understand President Trump's personal financial relationship with Russia and wealthy Russian businessmen who have ties to uh, Vladimir Putin, you don't understand what's going on. And this was part of the discussion, or at least what Hillary Clinton and the Democrats were trying to do during the the presidential election campaign, was try to tie Trump to his business dealings in Russia. Do you think Mueller is going to be able to connect the dots? It looks as though he's starting to connect the dots. The meeting uh, that Jared Kushner attended, convened by Donald Trump Jr., has given a lot of clues into those business dealings. It seems that uh, Donald Trump and many, many of his associates and friends had deep ties to Russian oligarchs. These are extremely wealthy Russian businessmen who are almost surrogates for Vladimir Putin, who do Putin's bidding, uh, and who have in turn become very wealthy because of the favoritism that the Putin government has shown them. If you don't understand that, it's very hard to understand why Donald Trump would, for example, be so favorable towards Vladimir Putin. There may have been, and there may, uh, in an ongoing way, be an incredibly strong influence from Vladimir Putin and the Russian government over Donald Trump and so many of his associates because there were financial ties. For example, we know Paul Manafort was deeply, deeply in debt um, to Russian sources, uh, and that's all starting to emerge as some of the reasons why uh, Paul Manafort may have been so favorable to Russia himself. Once uh, Robert Mueller starts digging and starts connecting those dots, uh, how is this going to play out in the public? Because you know Democrats are going to jump on this to say, hey, we told you so, or here's the latest bombshell. How do you think it's going to play out in uh, the, the, the broad scheme of Americans? Well, I remain very skeptical about impeachment. Uh, I suspect, and this is uh, very much of a guess, that it may lead to resignation ultimately, because once uh, Donald Trump realizes, as he's starting to, I think, how risky this situation is for him personally, uh, once his personal finances become 
clearer if his tax returns are subpoenaed and uh, depending what they show, this may end up being a criminal matter for him. And I think his concern, which, of course, the talk about self-pardoning suggests uh, that he is starting to become aware that he may be facing ultimately uh, criminal charges or that members of his family may be facing criminal charges. Uh, So uh, that raises a number of very difficult constitutional uh, and legal questions, and I think we're going to be struggling with those. But if I had to really lay odds on it, I would say it's more likely to result in resignation than impeachment. And you're guessing a, a potential or possible resignation would result more uh, because of the criminality surrounding what this probe might uncover as opposed to the public pressure? I, that's what I would guess. I mean, Donald Trump has shown himself uh, extremely unwilling to self-reveal on his personal finances, and that's probably for good reason. So the tax returns, uh, the possibility of having those subpoenaed as part of this investigation will have him particularly worried, and apparently uh, it has been reported that he has mentioned that as a trigger for his reaction to what's going on at the present moment. There is something clearly in those tax returns that he does not want to come out. He does not appear to be overly concerned about uh, mainstream public opinion. Uh, And so it seems as though the threat of a criminal probe, a criminal investigation or criminal charges is what is starting uh, to get him particularly worried. We're chatting with uh, Claire Finkelstein, the Algeron Biddle Professor of Law and Professor of Philosophy and the Director for the Center of Ethics and the Rule of Law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School here on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML. Bill, uh, Rick in for Bill this week. Um, how damaging could this be, not only for Trump, but the Trump family as well? Well, it's very damaging because uh, Jared Kushner clearly has extreme extremely serious legal problems at the moment. Uh, And whatever goes on with his finances is, of course, um, potentially implicating for Ivanka. Those are her finances as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so uh, Trump's own daughter is now going to be drawn into this uh, with regard to finances. We know that there isn't really any daylight between the finances of Trump's children and his own finances, despite uh, Trump's efforts to put his sons in charge of his businesses. We also know recently that uh, there remain conflicts of interest, and that may start to become the subject of further investigations as well, because in fact, Donald Trump has not divested himself from at least five of his businesses. Uh, And so these ties continue, uh, and the conflicts of interest uh, continue. And as we're starting to learn, the deep ties with uh, Russian businesses uh, continue in Russian businessmen in uh, different ways and are starting to become clear. Uh, This will implicate the entire family, unfortunately. Is there anything that the president can do at this point to get ahead of this? Or is it it a fait accompli? I would think that the very smartest thing that he could do, and this uh, is somewhat ironic, and I doubt he'll ever do it, would be to release his own tax returns mm-hmm. uh, and to come clean with a full explanation and offer as much information as possible. Because as soon as he does that, that would undercut Mueller's own investigation uh, in certain important ways. The fact that these 
this information keeps dribbling out in teeny dribs and drabs is part of what fuels the suspicion and part of what uh, leads Robert Mueller to keep digging deeper. If everything got put on the table, the investigation would, in effect, be over uh, if it could be shown that everything had come out. And then the political process of struggling with what does this all mean would begin. And, and that's where the president needs to be right now. White House uh, spokeswoman Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, said just yesterday that Trump had uh, no intention of firing Robert Mueller at this time, but she did not rule out doing so uh, in the future. And she also reiterated that uh, Trump's concern about the scope of Mueller's investigation, saying it, uh, quote, should stay in the confines of meddling, Russia meddling in the election and nothing beyond that. But it obviously sounds like Mueller is digging a lot deeper. Um, How soon do we expect Robert Mueller to conclude this monumental probe? I think it may take quite a while. Sometimes these investigations take a a very long time, and especially as the number of people involved uh, becomes broader and deeper. And a a point here is worth mentioning, which is that this has been compared to the investigation into President Clinton's uh, Whitewater deal and, uh, and the fact that that investigation ended up with Monica Lewinsky and a sex scandal, uh, people are saying, look, isn't this sort of the same kind of mission creep that's going on? It's important to notice that that's a very different kind of investigation and a very different kind of leap. First of all, that investigation um, was much narrower in scope. So one would expect, if you compare the two, this investigation to take so much longer given the complexity of the finances involved. But second of all, there's a much tighter relationship here between the Trump family finances and the relationship that Russia has to the United States. because this is, in, in effect, the same subject. So the idea that there's this line and that Mueller has suddenly crossed the line, I think is a bit artificial here, uh, but it does show you that the complexity of this uh, investigation could have it taking a very, very long time. Uh, Mr. Trump, is known to fire people. Do you expect him to turf Mueller, or at least try to? It is my expectation, and indeed I'm somewhat curious about why he suddenly turned on his attorney general, Jeff Sessions, Mm -hmm. uh, and why he suddenly started calling him out um, and complaining about his recusal. One could wonder whether or not he asked, already asked, Jeff Sessions to fire Robert Mueller, and that Jeff Sessions said, I have recused myself from this matter, I couldn't possibly do that. And that that might be the reason that President Trump has lashed out at Sessions uh, all of a sudden. We're not privy to that, that has not been in, that has not been reported, but one can only wonder, uh, and one figures that if he fired Comey, he will be very eager to continue that pattern and to fire Robert Mueller as well. You mentioned that the president will probably pardon himself from being involved in this in this probe. Do you expect uh, other members of the Trump family to do the same? Well, or that he will try to, to pardon other members of the mm-hmm. Trump family. I would expect that if Jared Kushner is convicted, um, for example, uh, of perjury because of lying on his application for security clearance, that the president would pardon Jared Kushner. Uh, He may very well pardon Paul Manafort if that results in uh, criminal 
uh, conviction. Um, Carter Page, maybe, maybe not. But pardoning himself is another matter. Uh, it is, to my mind, very questionable whether or not the president has the constitutional power to pardon himself. Um, Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution allows him to pardon, have a broad power of pardon, except in cases of impeachment. And one has to interpret that clause, that phrase, uh, the way one would interpret any other constitutional provision, which is what is the uh, purpose of that provision, what is the meaning of it. Very likely the purpose of that exception for impeachment is to avoid the president's being judge in his own case. Uh, so if we interpret that clause uh, in the spirit that it was written, it would preclude him from being able to pardon himself. Should be very interesting, uh, as it has been already, but maybe even more so from here on in. Claire, thanks for the time today. Enjoy the weekend. Thank you for having me. Take care. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It's troubling to end the week on a sad note as uh, the music world, the entertainment world, uh, really the world, I mean, is uh, anybody who was a fan of Linkin Park or, or of music is in mourning today as the L.A. County coroner uh, confirming that Linkin Park uh, singer Chester Bennington, who sold millions of albums, uh, with his uh, mix of hard rock and uh, hip-hop and rap style, was found uh, dead in his home uh, near L.A. yesterday. He was just 41 years of age. Uh, and another, you know, just tragic suicide story. A number of uh, tweets and outpouring of emotion have come out. Uh, Mike Shinoda, um, a fellow singer, uh, shocked and heartbroken, but it's true. An official statement will come out as soon as we have one. Uh, Dave Phoenix Farrell uh, simply tweets, uh, heartbroken. Imagine Dragons, no words, so heartbroken. R.I.P. Chester Bennington, uh, Nikki Six, uh, Motley Crue, uh, I'm in tears. Chester just told me how happy he was. He was such a sweet and talented man. I feel so sad for his family, bandmates, and fans. Jimmy Kimmel tweeting, uh, Chester was one of uh, the kindest men I've had on my show. My heart breaks for his family and friends. He will be missed terribly. One Republic also tweeted, Oh dear God, massive R.I.P. to Chester Bennington of Lincoln Park. This breaks our heart. Suicide is the devil on earth walking amongst us. And uh, it certainly is because it has taken a number of uh, individuals, both, both famous and not. I mean, you don't have to be famous to be uh, honored and remembered and mourned uh, because you took your own life. Uh, you know, uh, quote-unquote ordinary people uh, do this all the time, and it is uh, just as sad. Uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. from the sports world uh, NASCAR driver uh, tweeting a crazy sad news about Chester Bennington, hashtag Lincoln Park, hashtag RIP. So it really goes beyond just the music world. There's fans really from uh, all corners of the planet uh, mourning Chester Bennington's passing. Uh, we'll kick things off in our discussion about uh, his life, uh, his legacy, what he meant to the music uh, scene with uh, Alan Cross, music journalist and internationally known broadcaster. And he joins us now. Alan, long time no speak. How are you? Good. How are you, Rick? Not too bad. Well, I mean, this is a big loss to the music world. What a talent Chester Bennington was. We have to understand where Linkin Park came from. They came out of the late 90s, where the dominant form of rock was new metal, this intersection of hard rock and rap and hip-hop. It was a very polarizing form of music, and it gave us bands like Korn and Limp Bizkit. 
Lincoln Park was of that mold. They had those same influences, but they moved their sounds a little bit more to the right. They were much more conservative with the way they combined, combined these elements. And they managed to create a sweet spot for them. And as a result, they ended up selling 70 million albums. They were tremendously popular, even in the era of file trading and Napster in the early 2000s. Linkin Park was able to sell 10 million copies of their debut album in the United States alone. So that'll tell you exactly what kind of an impact they made on a lot of people. Their music was sort of a gateway drug that worked both ways. It got some rock fans into hip-hop, and it got some hip-hop fans into rock. And they became a very powerful, very popular band that was of the sort of stature where they were able to take on their record label and win. So it's, it's for a lot of people, they grew up with Linkin Park. It was really, uh, you know, a page out of the old Run DMC, Aerosmith, you know, Walk This Way, but they kind of added their own little mix to it as well. Yeah, there was a lot more pain. Yeah, in, in yeah. It. Um, Chester had a, a rough childhood. Uh, he was abused by an older male relative, or older male anyway, for, for apparently an extended period of time. Uh, there was a lot of rage, a lot of conflicting emotions, a lot of anger, and that music came, or that, that those feelings came out in Linkin Park's music. It, it was very cathartic for him. He was able to sing about the things that were painting him, about the demons that were plaguing him. And a lot of people found that, in turn, very cathartic and would turn to Linkin Park to feel better about themselves. Uh, he was into drugs and alcohol for a while, but he apparently managed to get things sorted out by middle aughts, somewhere around 2005, 2006. He went through one divorce, but then uh, married another woman named Talinda, and uh, he credited her with rescuing him from all kinds of depression and abuse and whatever. As far as we know, he was in, in, in great shape, I mean, with six children. And uh, he was in a successful band. He was in a loving relationship. He had a, a good, uh, good family life, but you know, obviously there was something, something plaguing him. And it seems to be the death of Chris Cornell that, that pushed him in this direction. Yeah, it was Chris Cornell's, uh, would have been his 53rd birthday yesterday. And, and they were good friends from what I hear. And, and maybe that was the final trigger and what, and what was really a, a troubled yet successful life at the same time for it, Chester. It, yeah, it, it's hard to uh, it's hard to to guess at anything else. He and and Chris were were very good friends. When Chris died, it was a huge blow to Chester. Chester sang at Chris's funeral mm -hmm. and uh, dedicated a number of performances to Chris in the interim. Um, and I don't think it's a, con it's, it's a coincidence that Chester chose to end his own life in the same way that Chris did yeah. on his birthday. What's Linkin Park's legacy going to be? They're going to be, like I said, this band that was able to beat the new metal odds and to bring a new form of hybrid music. I mean, their first album was called Hybrid Theory. This new form of hybrid music in, into, into play. And it turned out to be extremely popular, uh, even today, uh, you know, 17, 18 years after the band is formed. I mean, this is a group that never had a lineup change. 
and they were uh, had embarked upon their their current tour, uh, and were set to come into Toronto on August the eighth. As far as I know, the Budweiser stage was was sold out for this one. Uh, so, you know, for for many people, again, you know, millennials, maybe even uh, the generation after them, looked at Lincoln Park as as this band that was the best of all worlds for them when it came to the kind of music they liked. Is there a particular song from their set that really encapsulates what they're all about? Yeah, numb. I would go with with that mm-hmm. because it tells everything. If you listen to the lyrics, it tells you everything about where Chester's coming from. Yeah, it came from a dark place, but really uh, had a lot of success. Uh, Alan, thanks for the time. Uh, continued success. We'll talk to you sometime down the road. Hopefully under happier circumstances. Very much so. Thanks, Alan. Alan Cross, a music journalist, internationally known broadcaster, and uh, just a wealth of information, a treasure trove of information in all genres of of music. Uh, One thing that absolutely uh, disgusted me was hearing that uh, Talinda Bennington, uh, Chester's widow, uh, her Twitter account was hacked after news of uh, Bennington's death was reported, and uh, just reading some of the uh, the tweets that had gone out from the hackers, absolutely disgusting. I'll just give you uh, a little bit of a taste of what they sent out. Um, I never really loved him, and I'm not hacked. I just was in love with the money, hurts to say. And uh, he didn't kill himself. He was already, and I think they meant to say uh, dead, before he hung himself. I have proof. I mean, just sickening to, to get into the minds of some people who are, who are hacking is one thing. But to do it and, and do it that the way that they have, hacking Chester Bennington's widow's uh, Twitter account is absolutely abhorrent. I mean, come on. Give herself a shake. When we come back, we are obviously hit hard by celebrity suicides. But why are we? Why do celebrity suicides hit us so hard? Is it because we fall in love with these individuals? We adore them? We put them on the pedestal? We think they're going to be with us forever. We'll kind of dive into that, and we'll dive into the taking of one owns life uh, when we come back with Theo Sellis, who's going to dive into this topic and help us understand why this happened. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We are remembering the life of Lincoln Park lead singer Chester Bennington, who was... Uh, found dead in his home, uh, death by hanging, according to the coroner in uh, his uh, L.A. home yesterday. He was just 41 years of age. And, um, wow, what a talent uh, he was for remembering the life and the legacy of uh, uh, Mr. Bennington. I want to dive into, um, you know, suicide, uh, a person taking their own life. What leads to that? What are the triggers? And, and why... Why do celebrity suicides hit us particularly hard? Here to shed a little more light on that is Theo Sellis, registered family therapist and president of Integrity Works. You can find a whole lot of great information on his website, integrityworks.ca, and Theo joins us now. Theo, good morning. Good morning, Rick. How are you? Not too bad. Well, obviously another tragic suicide, uh, and they seem not to get any easier to talk about as the years go on. Yeah, well, that's the thing, though. I think that it should get easier to talk about as years go on. It's, it's uh, Every time this happens, as, as terrible as it is, it's also uh, an opportunity for people to ask people in their lives whether they've ever experienced the same kind of thing, whether they're thinking of doing the same kind of thing, to not be afraid of asking those questions mm-hmm. rather than just hoping for the best and um, 
and uh, and not broaching the topic because maybe they think that if they talk about it, it'll make it more likely to happen. Chester had uh, a, a rather difficult childhood. He did struggle with drug and alcohol addictions. He battled depression at times, but but also had a successful music career as well. Um, obviously, we can connect the dots and some of the, the things that he sung about. It was frustration and fury, basically. Uh, it was a lot of hate and, and anger, and that was uh, his way to, to get all those feelings out there. But in terms of celebrity suicides, I mean, these these hit us particularly hard. Robin Williams, uh, you know, Chris Cornell from the music world from earlier this year. Why do they hit us particularly hard? Well, a couple of reasons, I think. One is I think we, we tend to think of these people as because they're famous and they have a lot of resources that uh, we'd want to be like them, and they must have it pretty good, after all, because they have all these different, um, you know, things that they're capable of and all the fans and all the supposed love and, you know, freedom and financials and all that kind of adoration. We we think that they must have a really great life, you know, and uh, we, we don't necessarily think of them as people just like you and me, you know, with their own sort of day-to-day struggles. And I guess we also form like a personal relationship with them in our heads. You know, we, we start thinking about them in a particular way. They become a sort of a part of our lives. We have this kind of pseudo relationship with them. And then when they go, they make this choice. Um, then it impacts us. You know, we think of it as a real loss to ourselves as well. You make a great point. You know, we, we watch them in movies with, uh, you know, tons of makeup and uh, and in uh, newspaper or magazine or, or, or TV commercials. Where, you know, they're photoshopped in there. They seem to be the perfect uh, person, yeah. uh, man or woman. But, you know, behind the scenes, uh, they're just like any other person with, with uh, perhaps some major struggles that they're going through. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that this should point out is that there's a big difference between being able to sing about pain and being able to do something about it. Uh, you know, and, you know, we... People could be really good about talking about, you know, how terrible their lives are and how, you know, how badly they feel and um, you know, all the different obstacles that they're facing. And that's, that's, that's good. That's an expression. But it doesn't mean that you're actually doing anything to kind of resolve the issues. You're not actually learning different skills to be able to cope with it. You're just continuing to express it. But, uh, you know, it's like it's the difference when people come to therapy. Are they coming there to just to talk about things, or are they coming there to talk about things and to make some changes about how they deal with things or see things, how they cope differently with things, how they make sense of things differently? I don't mean to sound morbid, but how does someone go from struggling with addiction or other troubles to taking their own life? What happens there? Yeah, so, so I mean, you know, it's hard to come up with one reason for everyone. There's Everyone has different reasons and all kinds of different factors usually are at play for each particular person. You want to think about suicide as being a perceived solution to a problem, you know, like it's sort of like um, if I'm if if I kill myself, I don't have to feel this pain anymore. You know, if I if I kill myself, I don't have to deal with these particular problems anymore. I don't have to experience this anymore. This like a way out. So it's it's seen as being on some level um, a logical solution to a problem that people have been usually dealing with for quite some time. And people, you know, we all have problems, but where it gets to the point of suicide is when people start feeling like there's no hope for it to be different. So hopelessness and suicide are really linked together. So when you're really struggling with something, particular experience, particular pain, particular event, and you start thinking, this is never going to change. Like, there's no way out for you. I'm going to, I don't want, this is what life is going to be like for me. I, I just don't want to do this anymore. Um, Chester Bennington was really good friends with uh, Chris Cornell. Uh, Chris would have celebrated his 53rd birthday yesterday. Yesterday is when uh, Chester uh, decided to take his own life. Would that have been a major trigger? Is that a a trigger point that uh, he would have pointed to? 
usually with usually with younger people where this kind of like role modeling suicide happens. But I mean, it's possible. I mean, he he may have who knows. He may have felt the loss of that person um, personally, and and that added another sort of layer to you know what's the point? Why continue? Or he may have seen that as being well. Uh, he did this, and maybe he sort of saw it, it as being an act of courage. This person actually did it. Maybe I can do it as well. And, and all that sounds really hard for people to, to hear, because oftentimes people see courage, courage as something that you know is usually associated with really great things to do. You don't want to associate suicide with courage. Oftentimes people associate it with like cowardice, right? Mm-hmm. But on some level, a person struggling with this might have been afraid to take that next step, and then they might say, "Well, you know, that person did it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it as well." Theo, thanks for sharing uh, your thoughts. Uh, we'll talk to you down the road. You're welcome. Take care. Theo Sellis, a registered family therapist, a president of Integrity Works. Uh, the website, integrityworks.ca. Lincoln Park formed in 1996. It has sold more than 70 million albums worldwide as uh, two Grammy Awards to their credit as well. Uh, got their big break in 1999 when Bennington was uh, an interesting story. He was an assistant at a digital services firm in Phoenix, and a music executive sent him a demo uh, from the band Zero with a um, with an X instead of a Z. Um, this band needed a lead singer, and uh, he had been recommended by his attorney. Bennington wrote uh, and recorded uh, some new vocals over the band's playing and sent the results back. Soon got the gig, and the band then changed its name to Hybrid Theory and then to Lincoln Park. And I should mention as well that Bennington was the godfather to Cornell's 11-year-old son, Chris, and Bennington also sang Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah at Cornell's memorial not too long ago. Life and times of Chester Bennington, and um, hopefully he can indeed rest in peace. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.